Welcome to DLA Piper's Tech Law podcast series with me, Bryony Widdup, a finance and projects partner at global law firm DLA Piper. In this podcast, we're delighted to have an eminent industry executive join us to explore the future of the crypto industry, all as part of our preparation for the widely acclaimed DLA Piper European Technology Summit 2019 to be held on Tuesday the 15th of October in London. Via DLA Piper's social media channels, do look out for further details on that major biennial conference, attended by over 350 senior legal and commercial executives. The agenda will include various panel discussions that will reflect on the future of fintech across Europe and beyond. I am delighted to extend a special welcome to Tina Baker-Taylor, Executive Director and Board Member at Global Digital Finance, the industry body driving the acceleration and adoption of digital finance and global standards and codes of conduct, with whom we at DLA Piper are privileged to be a founding member alongside Circle, Coinbase, Consensus, Diginex, Hogan Levels, and R3. Hi, Tina. Hi, Brani. For the benefit of our listeners, it'd be great if you could give a brief introduction uh, to yourself and your professional background. Sure. Um, So I am the Executive Director at Global Digital Finance, or GDF. GDF basically is a not-for-profit industry body that fosters discussion on global policy and governance for crypto assets. Um, We do that with policymakers, regulators, and industry participants, so it's the whole ecosystem. You mentioned some of our community members. There are uh, hundreds more, so shout out to the GDF community. Um, And essentially what we uh, do is, um, in the first instance, develop a code of conduct for crypto asset participants and the companies that work with them. We will be launching a registration scheme for members to attest their um, compliance with that code of conduct, and we do policymaker outreach. So my background is transaction banking and investment banking. Um, I spent about 15 years in financial services before joining um, the the crypto uh, community. It has been interesting making the transition from the traditional financial community into the crypto asset community. And, you know, you've underplayed it here, but you've recently been recognized as a regulation and policy expert in the field of fintech. So congratulations. Thank you very much. And we share particular interests in this digital assets and cryptocurrency space, in particular in topics like business as a community, the dynamics of open source projects in ethics around this tech and finance progress and in pursuing best practice and governance for the future. So we want to talk about all of that, but I think the best place to start would be somewhere a little bit more concrete. So the UK FCA crypto assets paper is currently in its consultation phase. Many listeners, you know, including ourselves at DLA Piper and many other members of the GDF community might be thinking about contributions and and drafting responses to that consultation. But taking a step back from the detail of that process, should we be modeling national laws and regulations in this kind of fluid international change positive tech driven space? Or is this applying old ideas to this new market? 
and are there particular limitations of that yeah. approach? That's a, that's a great question. Um, so the reality is, is that technology moves faster than you know, society or institutional mindsets on mass, right? And there will always be a gap between what technology can do and enable versus regulatory or legislative frameworks. And it takes us humans and our systems, the, the infrastructure that we work within, to, to catch up to that. So I think this is one of the reasons that innovation is often referred to as disruption, um, which can be a slight disruption or it can be just a wholesale upending of the status quo. So in many ways, crypto assets were designed to be a wholesale disruption to how people transact with each other, raise capital, create new opportunities for investment, for, for more people to invest in smaller, more accessible increments, which was you know, designed to enable wealth creation, all good things, right? Um, and tokens are essentially the product innovation that has been enabled by the underlying technology of blockchain. So if we take a step back and we look at blockchain itself, it's, it is innovative, but it doesn't necessarily wholesale disrupt an industry, right? So, you know, it's more of um, an improvement that can potentially offer efficiencies um, and greater transparency to the way we do things today. So an example of that would be a faster post-trade settlement. So I think this is where the sentiment of blockchain, not Bitcoin, comes from. It's easier for people to accept improvements or moderate disruption versus something that's entirely new. And in many ways, crypto is entirely new, and, and that's really the rub of it. So we've seen various degrees of understanding and openness to crypto assets from governments and national regulators as they really try to assess both the opportunities and the risks. And their reactions have ranged from progressive net new frameworks to outright bans. So the governance uh, challenge poses a number of risks, I think. And in many industries, regulation can inhibit innovation. Um, but within crypto, the lack of regulatory clarity itself uh, is causing some friction for innovators uh, to be able to bring their products and services to market with any kind of certainty. You know, because this technology presents new ways of doing things and can create truly new financial products, the regulatory and legal frameworks just aren't a neat fit for purpose today. Um, and I think that's where policymakers and industry participants are working through how the frameworks can or indeed should uh, be interpreted for crypto. And I think we can both agree there are significant risks to any industry when you try and fit a square peg into a round hole and it just doesn't fit. Yeah, it's obvious that there's been uh, this friction around under-regulation, over-regulation, you know, and the potential uh, challenges that come with hitting either of those sides and trying to get to the position of uh, perfect regulation is this kind of uh, no such you know, thing. place that doesn't really exist, Balance, right? balanced regulation. <laughs> um, but, you know, one of the, the kind of new features, I think, of the, of the crypto space you know, you've talked about this kind of, there's blockchain, not Bitcoin. The so blockchain is maybe something that can plug and play more easily into existing systems. It doesn't require any kind of paradigm shift in terms of how you run those uh, like institutional products or the markets. What it does is kind of plug and play to improve processes within. But it can also form the foundation for this whole new potential market space. And what really is the paradigm shift 
potential within that. I think, you know, a lot of people might focus in on decentralization mm -hmm. um, as being, you know, a, a real core of a potential mm -hmm. paradigm shift, a peer-to-peer -peer enabling and taking away this central institution, central organization, mm -hmm. uh, governing bodies. However, in that context of the decentralized project and the decentralized system, it seems like potentially there are inherent tensions. It, it, it's, it's kind of held out as this visionary uh, space. And, you know, a lot of the issues that were thrown up by the financial crisis in terms of, you know, pr problematic features of centralized um, institutional structures, you know, could potentially be solved. But there are inherent tensions, you know, I think in the decentralized system with governing uh, ethical behaviors, mm -hmm. how you encourage ethical behaviors. And if we are in this point of, you know, paradigm shift, you know, what can we do to take part in a positive way in this potential big business ethics project? So this picture of the financial crisis being possibly, some, some quarters criticize a result of big business ethics fail come in, you know, the decentralized model kind of growing out of that as this idyllic, I don't know, space potential solution. But then, you know, challenges coming up out of that. If, if we are in this place where maybe we can map the way forward, you know, what are the real tensions that are inherent in, in, in this project of, you know, ethics and the decentralized space? The friction there comes from one of oversight and who, if anyone, can or, or should be entrusted to ensure an outcome. So within crypto, we see this ideological debate um, really in action through different protocol approaches to consensus. So you've got proof of work, you've got proof of stake, you've got delegated proof of stake, etc. And then, you know, the, the ethics piece, I think, if you, if you look broadly at innovation, um, it really is the manifestation of society's desire for something new. So that could be something faster, better, you know, value additive to our daily lives. And, you know, we talk a lot about machine learning today and the ethics around AI. And really, these algorithms have been in our lives for a long time. And, you know, they influence the way uh, we think and what we buy and how we interact with each other. So, you know... These machines are then learning from us at the same time that they're influencing us. And so people debate on how to build more ethical machines or more ethical algorithms, um, which are meant to help us streamline processes and create efficiencies. But if the people and the systems they're learning from are flawed, and they always will be because humans are inherently flawed. It suggests that there should be or could be or needs to be um, some way to vet and monitor the results are what we actually intended, right? And I think that's where the ethical dilemma comes in. So if uh, centralized uh, regulation is, you know, kind of contrary maybe to the decentralized system and um, there are also some, you know, limitations within the consensus approach as well that we've talked about. So those are kind of two sort of rule type models. You know, in what way can we maybe model self-governance initiatives to help with this monitoring and mediation task in these new market structures? Yeah, sure. Self-governance models enable a community to, in essence, police itself and community members who are skilled and knowledgeable experts in their field are probably more likely to spot anomalies in the system first. So a code of conduct reflects 
the behavior of a community that it chooses to hold itself accountable to. And hopefully this in turn breeds trust amongst the community participants and demonstrates to others so that's kind of key here, what the community stands for. And so, you know, that's the strength of the model of self-governance, I think, and, and its essence. Um, within the crypto community, because we have this regulatory uncertainty, because crypto assets are globally traded and, and transferable, and they don't sit in any one jurisdiction, complying with the code of conduct um, can demonstrate to others outside of that community that the, the companies that you know attest their compliance to such a code are acting ethically and that they adhere to good business practices. But the hope for a code of conduct is that it basically will create an extension of trust to consumers and investors and, and hopefully policymakers that there are indeed you know, good actors and companies that are trustworthy to do business with. And so you know, the, there are instances where a community-led code of conduct has solved for this gap, that cross-jurisdictional regulatory framework uh, challenge such as the Global FX Code, which now actually provides the formal governance for that market. Um, so there is precedence for code to become a formal solution. Yeah, and, you know, I think this uh, uh, whole project has been challenged to date with what you were talking about, the lack of availability of a cross-border, maybe, you know, cross-participant um, comparable yardstick, right, for behaviour because you just don't have the categories in place that would enable you to make these you know, intelligent comparisons. And I don't think we'll, people ask me all the time, are we ever going to see a harmonization of regulatory frameworks? And I, I, I don't think so. I think that there will be some areas of harmonization where it's possible, but different countries have different rules and laws for a reason um, and that is reflective of their cultural mores how that society operates so there is never going to be unless we all become one homogenized human race um, which would be terribly sad there will always be nuances that are based on the culture of that land so a full harmonization of regulatory frameworks i just don't think is possible yeah and again, I think, you know, that's one of the strengths of the self-governance model is the ability of the community to contribute and produce something that's flexible enough mm -hmm. to permit cultural difference and a problem with that over-centralized um, uh, regulation and, and rules, mm -hmm. you know, is that it does lose some of the value of the potential diverse contributions that this community can make to its own structure and its own uh, progress. Yeah, I'd agree. So you talked about the maturing of the crypto market and the, this crypto space and maybe the maturing of the, um, you know, the governance project within this space. And I wondered what we might be able to uh, learn in this space from other more mature examples of constructive crowdsource thinking and systems which rely on peer review for progress. Maybe uh, looking around, you know, you mentioned like the FX code is particular kind of financial product market. Crowdfunding is another example. And crowdfunding, right? And then, you know, but potentially a very mature space and, and the way that a space has operated like this for, for, for many centuries um, is the largely uncodified kind of academic rule book. So in for academia, sure. yeah. 
in how they make you know crowd-based progress in ideas and and and, and moving society forward and, and education forward you know maybe what benefits can these other models give um, for drawing our crypto community forward well i use peer review as an example all the time actually and and i think that um you know we certainly didn't call it that but in designing the GDF code of conduct, and I think in designing any code of conduct, when you're working with a, a collaborative approach and drafting something that, that the community is going to have to ratify and live by, so it's a voluntary code of conduct, it really needs to reflect the will and the intention of the community that it's intended to serve. So, you know, it's far more likely to be adopted and adhered to if the community has input into it. So, you know, how do you do that? How, how do you bring a community together that shares a, a similar interest in the progress and development of, in this case, crypto assets, um, or the tokenization of everything, um, within a community that also still has a lot of different ideological views about how to do that. So to bring that community together, there, there needs to be um, a, a shared way to ensure that everybody's voice is heard and that the end result reflects that of the community and that was that was um and continues to be an interesting dilemma right sometimes it works and, and sometimes it's a challenge um but you know we have a working group that that works on these codes um collaboratively they are then debated and and essentially peer-reviewed in open community at at our summits which happen quarterly then they're placed up for public consultation and again are are edited and receive feedback and you know sometimes those are anonymous and 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 people are quite candid they sometimes um are previewed by by different um regulatory observers that are part of our community so a lot of assessment validation vetting kind of arguing the brief goes into these pieces and hopefully the end result is that they're solid pieces of, of principle-based frameworks that really do solve the gap between different regulatory frameworks or indeed legal frameworks um, that differ by jurisdiction in bringing together all of these actors in the crypto community, you're kind of trying to guide like a fleet of ships to head in the same direction, but have, you know, different roles within that fleet, you know, and, and, a, and a breadth across their positioning and, you know, how they're operating. They're, these ships are all operating in a different way. But you, you need some way to help to guide the whole fleet together to make it work together as a as a market and as a machine so that all of those interactions are effectively um, executed and managed in order to keep this fleet moving forward in, in a constant direction and self-governance has a way of building up i think these um, you know codes and principles of practice that almost are internal to the fleet and work out the interrelationships between the fleet but there's still some role for an the a central regulatory body or an, a, a more directional almost helicopter type viewpoint on the 
direction of motion of the entire fleet itself. And so maybe Not there's sure this I agree with you, hand though. in hand. You don't? Mm-mm. Okay. Well, maybe, I mean, maybe that's interesting in itself. Yeah. So I think, you know, maybe the question is, is there an ability for central regulatory bodies to maybe be more open on the one side of the spectrum and then this community to opt into more formal self-governance models and so that those two ends of the spectrum can meet somewhere in the middle and produce this ideal semi-central, semi-community regulatory outcome? Mm-hmm. Or is that not the way forward? No, I think that is the way forward. So um, from if we look at things like accelerators and regulatory sandboxes, those are great examples of how regulators, policymakers, and the community can learn in concert with each other in real time in practical terms. So, you know, you're not talking about the ethereal um, what if. You're, you're actually in the sandbox creating the thing, identifying risks as they arise, and then resolving them uh, together. So I think what is interesting is that this is the first time certainly in my lifetime um, and you know I'm old enough to remember the dot-com boom and went through that in an investment banking capacity to have something entirely net new come into financial services that does potentially need its own um, interpretation either of what exists today or in some cases new frameworks to support the technology and the results of the technology. So consultations like the FCA, and, and I really would like to you know, applaud them personally, and there are other jurisdictions that are the same. Um, Switzerland was probably the first very progressive one to, in concert with the community, try and figure out the best way forward. Um, but if you're, if you're co-collaborating um, and you're seeking information on both sides, you're probably going to end up with a better result. And I've, I have seen the FCA not just have open consultations, but roundtables and in-services and, you know, bilateral conversations over the last year that I think have really helped inform their thinking. And I think we've seen some shifts around, you know, wanting to clamp down on certain things um, to being more open to the ideas of others. In the context of this crowdsourced thinking and, um, you know, upcoming self-governance models in this area, how can our central regulators stay relevant and stay involved and, you know, really bring out their own best practice to coordinate and help to bring this community forward? Regulators at their at their heart, their mandate is to protect consumers, to protect us. So, you know, they're important um, to hold people accountable. And I think specifically in financial services, which is my area of expertise, you know, people's money is important. And, um, you know, we have seen over the years lots of breaches of trust whether that is a data breach or, you know, a global bank is found out to be, you know, enabling money laundering or, you know, sending money to sanctioned countries that potentially is going to terrorist financing, you know, breaches in compliance. So the, the regulator's role is ultimately to ensure that consumers are protected 
and to not necessarily instill financial stability in the system, but they're certainly there to help support that. Um, and I think that's really important. Where we've seen um, some friction, you know, and this is probably over the last 15 years, in fintech specifically, when you look at, well, you know, but we can do this now and we couldn't do this before, or we can offer the service better, cheaper, it's better for the consumer. Uh, we don't need to be charging people 25 pounds to send money home to Colombia. We could do it for, you know, two pounds 50. Why won't you let us? Um, and that real kind of value exchange between what's possible, you know, what's safe to do and what's the end benefit for the consumer. So, you know, those sandbox environments, again, I'll come back to them, are a great way for um, regulators and innovators to test their ideas in a kind of safe space, right? And without those opportunities, I think that we would, we would all suffer without the advances that some of this technology can offer us um, and, you know, save us money and, you know, make our lives easier, right? Um, I think, you know, being a regulator is hard. And, and one of the other things that I don't know that maybe everybody appreciates is that the regulator enforces the law of the land. They don't make the rules. So they're only able to interpret what the lawmakers allow them to interpret. So oftentimes people will say, oh, the regulator, the regulator needs to do this, the regulator needs to do that. And um, I think that we can be better educated about what regulators are actually empowered to do um, and what their mandate is. And it really is to our benefit. Thanks to Tina Baker-Taylor, Executive Director and Board Member at Global Digital Finance for sharing her insights on the current state of governance in the crypto industry today. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to sit here and have a chat with you. Do look out for further podcasts from global business law firm DLA Piper as we explore the influence of regulation and emerging technology in business and wider society. Several podcasts on fintech and other disruptive technologies are available to listen to on our website or maybe accessed via the Apple Podcast app or SoundCloud, as well as other apps and services for Android and other phones. Do also note that we will, on Tuesday the 15th of October, in London, be hosting our widely acclaimed DLA Piper European Technology Summit, a major biennial conference attended by over 350 senior legal and commercial executives. We're looking forward to eminent industry executives joining us across several panel discussions, covering fintech and other innovations across a variety of industries. Do also follow DLA Piper on our social media channels and look out for further details due to be published soon, allowing you to register to join us for that exciting day exploring a variety of aspects of digital transformation and emerging technologies across multiple industries with leaders from across Europe and beyond. Thank you from me, Bryony Widdup, partner in the finance and projects practice in global law firm DLA Piper. <laughs>